0: The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts.
1: I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you updates from Ukraine, the latest on diplomatic moves across Europe, and I interview Sophia Yan, The Telegraph's China correspondent, to get her analysis on President Xi's visit to Moscow.
2: This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. We need a military
1: strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the
2: war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong We're Ukrainians.
1: Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground. To bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday, the 23rd of March, one year and 27 days since the full scale invasion began. And today I'm joined by our Assistant Comment Editor Francis Dernley, our Weekend Foreign Editor Venetia Rainey, and our China correspondent, Sophia Yan. I started by asking Venetia for the latest updates from Ukraine.
0: So I'm going to start with what's going on on the ground in Ukraine. There hasn't been tons of movement. We're still roughly in the same stalemate that we've been seeing for a while. Um, but in the northeast of Ukraine, Russia has made several kilometers of gains, according to the British Ministry of Defense. And. Um, The MOD says that they're probably trying to capture Kupyansk, which would be a strategic town for them to retake. The gains are fairly incremental, but still, that's the sort of most movement that we're seeing on the front line there. The MOD does also say, however, that Russia is worried about a Ukrainian offensive in that area. So it's clearly not something that Russia is going to run away with anytime soon. In Bakhmut, the city we've been following for a while where it's become a sort of meat grinder, effectively. There's been very little movement. In fact, if anything, it's slowed down. Ukraine has been saying today that it plans to take advantage of this slowdown and that it will be launching a counteroffensive, excuse me, to take advantage of the fact that Russia has effectively wasted so many resources and people and weapons trying to capture this town, which is of limited significance, as our listeners will have heard to the umpteenth degree. Um, Another big story that we've been looking at today is some comments by um, Dmitry Medvedev, Russia's ex-president. Our listeners might remember him as a a liberal reformer. He was a big hope for the West, but has since the Ukraine invasion gone, let's say, slightly mad. um, And regularly now comes out with these incredibly bombastic comments. Today, he was commenting on Putin's possible arrest um, under the ICC arrest warrant that was issued last week to do with his abduction, alleged abduction, of children. He said that if any country did try to arrest Putin under this arrest warrant, it would be seen by Moscow as a declaration of war. And he gave a very specific example talking about if, for example, Germany did it, all of our means, rockets and others will fly on the Bundestag in the chancellor's office and so on. So this is exactly the kind of language that we'd expect from Medvedev, but it's it's a very clear threat to any country that might be thinking of trying to execute that arrest warrant. We don't have any firm travel plans for Putin at the moment. Um, we know he might be going to South Africa in the summer. We know he was supposed to be going to Kazakhstan maybe in a couple of months. Both of those countries are signatories to the Rome statute, which would make them um, would, would would oblige them to arrest Putin under the arrest warrant. But we don't think South Africa would do that. We don't think Kazakhstan would do that. Both of them are allies of Russia. Even Hungary today has come out and said that it wouldn't execute the arrest warrant, that it wouldn't arrest Putin, that it doesn't think it's valid. So it was a very bold statement by the ICC to issue this arrest warrant. But I think in practical terms, we're already starting to see that it will be of limited Efficacy, probably, in the long run. Um, Another story to flag is that the UN nuclear agency's chief has said that the situation at Ukraine's Zaporizhia power plant remains perilous. We had a Russian missile strike this month that disconnected the plant from the grid. Um, This has been an ongoing story. Russia's attacks on Ukraine's nuclear facilities Um, And since this Russian strike in March, the plant has ride on a single backup power line that remains disconnected and under repair, according to the head of the IAEA. Um, So that's one to keep an eye on. And I'll stop there and let Francis pick up some other updates.
1: Thank you very much for that,
2: Venetia. Uh, Francis Sternley, you've been listening to all of that. What would you like to add? Thanks, David. And welcome back to our listeners around the world The remarks of Russia's ex-president Dmitry Medvedev are extraordinary, and I know we've become desensitized to it now, but it is worth bearing in mind that this was a former world leader. This is somebody who represented Russia on the world stage, and to see him making these kind of incendiary remarks, saying that if international law effectively is followed and Putin were arrested, according to the ICC arrest warrant by a country who'd signed up to their own statute, Rockets would fly, and that that would mean a declaration of war I mean do I believe it no but nonetheless it is shocking and it just does speak to the derangement I think of the senior figures in Putin's inner circle because it is just uh, well as I say extraordinary it sounds like something a bond villain would say anyway um I- I think also, interestingly, there has been some more response to the arrest warrant. Hungary, as uh, Venetia alluded to, have said that they would not arrest Putin were he to visit Hungary. Now, the reasons cited for this are quite interesting. Viktor Orban's chief of staff has said that they refer to the Hungarian law. And based on that, we cannot arrest the Russian president as the ICC statute has not been fulfilled in Hungary. So they would say that even though they're signed up to the Rome Statute, that because it hasn't gone through into the uh, Hungarian legal system or legal code, thereby they are under no obligation to arrest him. I mean, one could argue that's rather convenient. But anyway, uh, that's, I think, uh, speaks to the tone of those countries who are still friendly with Russia. They don't want to get uh held up by this. They don't want it to impede them. And though thus, as a consequence, they're quite willing to uh, f- essentially find excuses for, for not doing so. Uh, although the very fact that they are having to answer these kind of questions when they're put to them by journalists is in of itself, I think, a success. As to the importance of the arrest warrant, it's changed the tone of the conversation, if nothing else, that this is a constant charge now. Whenever Putin travels around the world, whenever he tries to go to any summit, this is going to be a question that will be asked. And there will be countries that will... Say to Russia behind closed doors, not publicly, that they don't want Putin to visit because it might be that they are obligated to arrest him. and They don't want to be in the decision of not doing that. They don't want to face that conundrum. So it does matter, even if countries are rejecting it or some of them are rejecting it uh, publicly. Uh, just staying on Russia for one more story, uh, Russia's defence minister, Sergei Shoigu, has pledged to boost the country's air defence forces in an apparent reaction to increasing attacks on Russian border towns from across the Ukrainian border. There was a m- senior meeting of Russia's top brass last night where it was agreed that the military would aim to add new units with advanced air defence systems and replace the older missing systems with newer ones. Now, what we don't know, of course, is whether this is actually within Russia's capability to do this it was no doubt for an international audience as well as a domestic one this kind of Uh, discussion. It's been quite interesting. I think some of the analysis that's come out from certain think tanks, including the Institute for the Study of War, who've essentially indicated that any talk of Russia of uh, getting more advanced weaponry is unlikely to generate such forces within several years, whether that be advanced defense weaponry, whether that be more advanced weaponry of any kind. So a lot of this may well just be sort of posturing, essentially. But nonetheless, it does speak to the kind of rhetoric at the moment from Russia, which is still about escalation militarily, it's still about developing its forces, There's still the talk, of course, about this new nuclear weapons that they're promising. So it, it's all the same old stuff. And we shouldn't read too much into it. But nonetheless, it does speak, I think, and to after she's visit, that they feel still continually emboldened to, to do these sort of things. And speaking of she's visit I mean of course we're still trying to analyse the aftermath of this and I know that we're running an interview with Sophia Yan from the Telegraph of course a regular on the podcast uh, discussing her reflections on the visit after uh, this initial segment but I did just want to talk a little bit and I know that she's going to talk in more detail about this some remarks that were recorded on audio from the very very end of the visit and I say it is revealing that these have been made public these are off the cuff remarks and they must have been signed off by the Kremlin and by uh, the Chinese media and agency and the government in order for that for this to be broadcast. But what we see is we see President Xi uh, talking to Putin just before he gets in a car to leave. And he says that, uh, and I'm quoting it from him directly, right now we are seeing a change we haven't seen in 100 years and we are driving this change together. Then Putin replies, I agree. Take care of yourself, dear friend, please. What are they talking about? Well, they might just be talking about the relationship between the two countries and the opportunities afforded by their new technical economic relationship, which I think was what was being bigged up in the joint agreement. Or it could be something more sinister from a Western perspective. It could be talking about an emboldening of their alliance and a strengthening long term as to their cooperation and essentially trying to forge a new oppositional force to the West in the long term. It's possible. We don't know. But the very fact that it's been released means that they want to keep us guessing in the West. I think it's fair to say. But I know, as I say, Sophia will talk more about that. Just one other remark on she at the moment, of course, this will be familiar to listeners who've been following this for a while, that we were told prior to the summit that she was going to go to Moscow and then he was going to talk to President Zelensky uh, with regard to their peace plan, their peace proposal. This has not materialized. I've heard nothing. I've read nothing about where we are on that. And so I do wonder whether that was just an excuse to try and play up the idea of China being a peacemaker and thus going to Moscow and then talking to Zelensky, when actually it was for other purposes entirely. Otherwise, I would have expected us to have had that conversation with Zelensky right now. Now, I do still think that will go ahead, but I just find the timing interesting that we have not seen that. It doesn't speak to the urgency of the situation that perhaps the Chinese were talking about prior to their meeting in Moscow. But Also on this theme, it's noteworthy, I think, that uh, she has invited the Spanish prime minister to Beijing for a state visit in uh, a few weeks' time. Now, they're citing the reason for this as the possible mediation in the war in Ukraine. Now, Spain has been one of the most earnest supporters of uh, Ukraine in Europe, and so I do think that they are trying to... uh, as it were, play up to this idea. Of China, at least on the surface, of of, uh, of of reaching out to countries who are committed to Ukraine, but nonetheless, perhaps they feel might be in a position to help them in this role they seek to have of of being the chief mediators and boosting their profile on the world stage. And why pick Spain? Well, because Spain will assume the presidency of the council of the European Union in July. So, in a few months' time, it will be Spain that will be in position in terms of brokering meetings shaping the kind of tone of conversations perhaps they feel that now is the time to try and soften them up for that and perhaps they think july will be a key moment in the war who knows but as i say i think it is revealing david but i'll take a pause there
1: thank you very much for that francis and just to say to listeners uh, the, uh we interviewed i interviewed uh, sophia yan our china correspondent um earlier today and that's actually the very first question i ask her is what was her reaction to Xi and putin's remarks as she's leaving the kremlin for the last time Venetia, can i come to you um just for one more update uh this this is a sort of a british a british polish story that we've been following um prince william has been spotted in poland what's he been doing there
0: Yeah, so the Prince of Wales, he made a surprise visit um, to Poland, we didn't know this was coming. But he said that he wanted to personally thank British and Polish soldiers who were involved in the war in Ukraine for defending our shared freedoms. Um, There are great pictures. We've got obviously a story up online on The Telegraph, which you can see of him meeting the soldiers and inspecting guns. And he said he was struck by their passion as well as their shared determination to defend our shared freedoms and that everyone back home thoroughly supports you. Um, It's it's really significant. Poland has been a bit of an outlier country I suppose in the EU, more on the side of Hungary for for quite a while in terms of its stance on liberal democracy and human rights and a lot lot of the things that we consider core British values or core European values. Um, But since the Ukraine war has broken out that relationship and and that sort of attitude towards Poland has has shifted dramatically Um, the government there hasn't changed and a lot of that stuff is still going on but the fact that they have come out so strongly in support of Ukraine and the the fact that they have been a very important military base for training up Ukrainian troops for repairing Ukrainian weapons for shipping weapons to Ukraine Poland is the hub for all of that in fact the 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 um the town the city Reszel that Prince William landed in yesterday that's the hub where most of these weapons go through or are brought back to to be repaired. Um so Poland has really become a key ally for the West in the fight against Russia um in Ukraine. Um, and so it's it's quite significant that Prince William felt that he should go out there and meet soldiers in person and by all accounts it was really appreciated by the soldiers there.
1: Well thank you very much Venetia, and it's really good to have you back on. Um Just another little plug, we did speak to um, our Poland correspondent, the foreign correspondent, Matthew Day, about this. He wrote the story for the Telegraph website on Poland's huge rearmament. Uh, You can listen to that interview in yesterday's Ukraine, the latest. It's right at the end of the episode. It's about 15, 20 minutes long. That's an interview I did with Matthew Day, our foreign correspondent, uh, on Polish rearmament. So do go and listen to that if you're interested for more. So thank you very much, Venetia. Francis, can I come back to you? There's an awful... There's a a huge number of political and diplomatic updates from across uh, Europe. Where would you like to start?
2: Thanks. Well, Venetia is right. I think the Poland visit by Prince William is important, not because it's the idea of a royal family member going is necessarily something that should make international headlines. But I think it's important because it signals, doesn't it, the importance that Poland has. This is a spontaneous visit. We weren't expecting it. And I'm sure part of the reason for that is security reasons. But another reason is because Poland perhaps have surprised us all in terms of the robustness of their response to the war in Ukraine. And who knows, maybe the royal family are trying to signal in their own way that Poland Poland are doing the right thing, that this kind of remobilization, this kind of investment in their armed forces is the way that other countries in Europe, particularly Britain, should be going. I don't know, I'm not a royal expert, but I do think that that is perhaps significant given the tone of the conversations taking place in Britain at the moment what Poland have done has been extraordinary and I should say that it's not without some criticism domestically at home in Poland there are those who say that it's going to cost an enormous amount of money and where is it all coming from will it uh, come back and, and bite them in the long term and will this be something that they'll actually rue it's too early to say but nonetheless I think there are many many people who sympathize with what Poland has done in response to the invasion of Ukraine and who feel that more countries, including those who committed to doing more, should really be following their suit in terms of mobilising, if nothing else, than to act as a deterrent. And that's the point, right? It's that Just because you're uh, creating more or investing more in your armed forces does not mean that you're actually wanting to use them. It's just having them sometimes is enough to act as a deterrent, as I spoke about at the end of the podcast yesterday. So I think that's significant. Staying also on Central and Eastern Europe, we've finally seen a break in the deadlock with regard to Finland joining NATO. Turkey was, of course, holding that up. But President Erdogan has said, we've decided to initiate the ratification process in our parliament. That was the last stumbling block. So Finland will be joining NATO soon. The concern, of course, is that Sweden is still being held up for domestic reasons in Turkey, Turkey have played hardball. I think it's fair to say, in order to get certain things out of Sweden and Finland and NATO and the West more broadly, uh, as an exchange for uh, permitting NATO and Finland to, to um, uh, Finland and Sweden to join NATO. Uh, so, uh, I, but the, the reasons why Sweden is particularly complicated are for reasons we've spoken about in the past. But uh, it's it's a, a positive step, but I think there will still be some frustration uh, in Europe uh, with regard to this being held up, because people will feel that it would have sent a very powerful signal if both had either been ratified together or at the very least it had happened much sooner. But Turkey, for its own reasons, has decided that, that is not what it sought to do. But nonetheless, it matters and it is important when one is being perhaps sort of more pessimistic or zoomed in as things that they stand, that if one is looking at the broad canvas of this war historically, this was a war that was from uh, Putin's excuse for it was to stop the expansion of NATO, and yet we have seen uh, NATO's members increase as a consequence of the war. So in that, he has utterly, utterly failed. And it is, I think, important to remember that at this moment. Um, just staying in this part of the world, uh, Estonia's prime minister, Kallis has spoken against the weakening of sanctions against Russia under a deal to export Ukrainian grain. Moscow are trying to wiggle out of some of the sanctions that have been made, uh, put on the country by the West in an attempt to, uh, uh, to enable the... continuation of the grain deal Um, but she is speaking very critically of this view and uh, essentially has broken rank in publicly doing so. Negotiations are still ongoing. I think Ukraine is still happy for the grain deal to go ahead and Russia are still keen for it to do so but inevitably Russia are trying to get more out of it and so she's spoken out and said that this should not mean a uh, slowing down of the sanctions and indeed she thinks that they should uh, be ramped up. She says we shouldn't weaken the sanctions and she adds that You could still use 18 ports for its agri food exports to third countries, that only a dozen or so of Russian banks were being targeted by Western sanctions. And so, by that, obviously suggesting that more can and should be done. And I think, sort of trying to wrap all of these themes together, there's quite an interesting piece in the Washington Post about. European support and American support as well for Ukraine in the military space. We've obviously been covering it for a long time. We've heard commitments now about Soviet-era fighter jets going to Ukraine, of course, most significantly about tanks. But what this piece does, and it's quite a long read, which I'd point listeners to, is just talk about some of the timescales in which we're speaking about here. I mean, the tanks we're not expecting until after the fall. That would be six months after the supposed uh, planned date of the Ukrainian counteroffensive. We don't know where and when that will be, but that's the kind of expectation at the moment. So that would be very late for some of those tanks that are coming. Of course, the the fighter jets are, are older. They're not exactly going to be necessarily the game changers people expect. There's also the article talks a lot about some of the longer range rocket artillery, the basic ammunition, the shells that Ukraine needs and isn't yet getting. And I think one reading pieces like this is the common thread, as it were, is that commitments have been made, commitments were right to have been made, Kiev welcomed them. But some of these commitments were made without the proper procurement being put in place that would enable those to happen in a timely manner. And Russia is preparing to arm itself quicker. It's mobilising more and more of its vast potential as it were in terms of bringing more developing more shells developing more ammunition in a way that perhaps is we're not seeing to the same level in the west and that is of course a big concern for the coming months and so i think that's the tone of where we are uh, in that space and so as ever watch this space david
1: well thank you very much for that francis thank you earlier to vinicia for your updates as well um so i'll just ask you francis now for for your final thoughts
2: Thanks, David. Well, I've tried to draw attention in the past to the actions of Russian dissidents and their persecution in Putin's Russia. And there have been a few updates in this space in the past week or so. Yesterday, police and criminal investigators in Moscow raided the homes of nine staff and board members of Memorial, of course, a human rights organisation that will be very familiar to listeners. They won the 2022 Nobel Peace Prize. And it is One of the charities in Russia that seeks to restore and preserve the historical memory uh, of Stalin's great terror, rehabilitate its victims and promote human rights more broadly. Among the homes that were raided was that of Oleg Orlov, who was co-chair of Memorial. And there have been other senior figures in the charity as well, we understand. They are charged with discrediting. Russia's armed forces and more broadly have been strongly condemned by the state of distorting history around World War II and of creating a false image of the Soviet Union, something which in Putin's Russia is, is not the done thing, to put it mildly, for all sorts of reasons which we've expanded on in the podcast in the past. More broadly, hundreds of other individuals have been criminally prosecuted under similar charges in recent years, while thousands It's important to remember that thousands face administrative charges over criticism of the war. As part of this latest raid, authorities also searched office spaces that have been affiliated with the memorial in the past. And earlier this month, the prosecutor's office opened a criminal case case against unspecified memorial members on justification of Nazism charges. And the way they try and justify that is they say that memorial in commemorating some of the victims of Stalinism were, in a sense, championing a few individuals who advocated for Nazism memorial of condem- have, have, have said this isn't true, that they're just trying to you know, talk about history in a nuanced way um, but of course this is a very convenient excuse for the state to use in order to shut down memorial as they have done and to persecute those who are behind it and as we've talked about in the past, any country that seeks to distort its history in a state-mandated manner like this should be a huge concern, particularly when we're dealing with modern history and particularly when we're dealing with a country where its leaders have killed millions of their own people in the past, which is something that is now trying to be essentially covered up by the Russian state. And the other story that's in this space is that last week, the trial of Vladimir Karamuza, who I've spoken about on the podcast previously as well, vice chairman of Open Russia, of course, which promotes civil society and democracy in the country, began in Moscow. He stands accused of high treason. In April 2022, he was arrested on charges of disobeying police orders. Later, his arrest was extended after new charges of discrediting the military were introduced. Again, a similar charge against Memorial. And in October, new charges of treason were reportedly introduced against him. It's just vitally important, I think, that we don't forget these individuals. That uh, it's very easy because it's very difficult to report on what's going on in Russia. That they disappear uh, into prisons. That they are their court um, hearings are not publicised. That there's not open to the media, and so we are not able to cover it in the detail that that perhaps we would like. Um, but we have to do our best to remember them because these are incredibly brave individuals who've chosen to stay in the country rather than leave which is of course what the state encourages them to do uh, it, because they feel it is important to to remain in their home country and to show in the case of mr Karamuza, that the that there are Russians there who defy Putin publicly and and it reminds me I think it was Jefferson I'm sure our American listeners will correct me if I'm wrong where he said that those who struggle against tyranny have been the chief martyrs of treason laws in all countries, that it's very often uh, those who are attacked for treason are those who are actually struggling against the fight of oppression and for a brighter future. So it's important we don't forget them, David. But I'm conscious that Venetia has had to go. So we've got a little bit more time. I know we didn't plan this, David, but... I'm aware that you've, of course, been covering this war as much as we have. And you've been heroically moderating and steering these podcasts now for, for months. But it's been a while since we've had an opportunity to hear your reflections on on where we are. What stories have held your attention? Just wondering if you've got any final thoughts.
1: I think the, I, I would say two things. I think the the visit of Xi to Moscow and how that's played out. I mean, It was very interesting talking to Sophia and how and Roland actually yesterday on their thoughts about this and how and in in what ways it surprised them and what the point Sophia makes is that maybe this isn't trying to make a huge statement or be a big thing maybe it is just a a routine visit because he's actually because she has actually visited Moscow quite a few times and is obviously quite friendly with Putin. Maybe it's not more than that. Maybe we shouldn't necessarily lean in and overanalyze. And um, as I said, you can hear that interview later. But I thought it was an interesting point because it's not massively clear to me just yet what it might all mean. We've been talking about it for three, four days. Uh, we've heard from n- a number of our reporters um, in Europe and and Sophia, you know, is, is, is in Taiwan. And it's, it, the, the, the this what's come out of it is not yet clear to us i'm not i'm not totally convinced yet it's a sort of hardening of lines between um between uh, china and russia and the west it i it, the, the 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 goals and methods of chinese diplomacy really seem much more opaque than i perhaps expected and i think that's quite interesting so i'm, I'm again i would just say listen to sophia's interview it's very interesting and i think potentially the how this plays out in the next few weeks and indeed months i mean you mentioned uh, she's invitation to the spanish P- the spanish pm that seems considering Spain's uh, incoming presidency of the, of, of uh, an EU body, extremely important that China, that the, the eye of China is is moving quite swiftly onto this. And it clearly in some ways wants to get in, involved.
2: They're taking the
1: initiative. And they're taking the initiative partly potentially because they see that the US is taking the other side. So on the one hand, they're supporting their ally in Russia. On the other hand, there's a keenness to be seen as the mediators. And after the success of the Iran-Saudi deal a few weeks ago, you can see how this might be sort of next on the agenda. Um, and we've spoken a lot on this podcast, about uh, framing events and narrative, going from how do we talk about the, the war, the invasion, the full-scale invasion, the, the words we use, the frames of reference we we use, and it seems as if China will will enter that sort of metaphorical struggle and seem and, and will try to frame this war in a way which benefits their own diplomatic vision. And of course, whenever you think of that, you have to think of their eye being firmly fixed on Taiwan in the east. And that, that is of primary Chinese interest and to support their ally to make sure Russia doesn't crumble and fall. Um, those are just my observations, not a trained diplomat. But I do talk to a lot of a lot of the journalists here. The other thing I'd say is going from the interview we did with Francis Farrell yesterday of the Kiev Post. Francis, um, an Australian journalist who lives in Ukraine, speaks Ukrainian and Russian, and has been... I was astonished by the amount of work he'd, he'd done in terms of travelling up and down the front lines, talking to Ukrainian soldiers and getting a real... Um, a real close sense, close to the ground sense of what life is like, what daily life is like for them, and I thought it was an incredibly moving account of loss and um, the, the the grinding nature of this war. Uh, I mean, he talks about um, the people he he works with and sort of um, you know does choir with in Kiev and and their loss, and it, he he really brought home for us, I think, that this. Sometimes I think when we when we start our reporting, we start usually with, well, the British MOD military intelligence said X. Let's see how that plays out. Or Ukrainian um, military said Y. OK, that's fine. Well, the Russians said this. And, and then we work backwards from those statements. Whereas he his reporting kind of did it the other way around. And it's I spoke to these soldiers. They told me this, how tired they are, how out of ammunition they are, um, the losses they've incurred, that how they're they're not sure you know about the upcoming offensive and then he works back to what the officials have said and places it within a society which has been you know at war since 2014 let's not forget uh, and been enduring and resisting a full-scale invasion since um, February last year and I thought that way of looking I mean that's why I wanted to speak to him and bring him on because I thought we really needed that perspective I think Um, and that I, I think I think as well. The final thing I'd say on all of this is, oh gosh, I didn't realise I'd, I'd have so much to say. But <laughs> That's why I asked David. Um, is is that the fog of war is really intense? We, it's very difficult to know. Um, we we do put a lot of you know store and trust in things like the British Military of Defence, um, Ministry of Defence intelligence updates. What. what people tell Francis Farrell, Farrell on the ground, what people tell you, Francis, in the office, what we hear from our journalists around the world. It's, But it's still very, very difficult to see through um, the violence and, and the deaths and the missile strikes and the underhand diplomacy and the back and forths to try and get a true sense. I mean, that's what we've been trying to do since day one is give an accurate and as representative uh, perspective on what we think is happening. And the more we've done this, the more I think, actually, it's incredibly hard to do. I, I really hope to all our listeners we do we do do it a good enough job um but those those have been my three takeaways i think that i'm not sure yet of the significance of the chinese visit it's of xi's visit to moscow it just seems as if that 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 engine room of chinese diplomacy is now up and running and it'll become clear in the next few months what's 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 happening but always to remember that that um that taiwan is always in the background of of any discussion of chinese interest and influence in, in this in this war second as i said um That never to forget that the the endurance and the suffering of the Ukrainian people, the the soldiers on the front line, each of whom each of whom is a human being with family and loved ones and friends, and a life elsewhere. Uh, and I thought, as I said, Francis Farrell um, talked about that movingly and at length yesterday. So I would commend that interview to, to listeners if they go back and listen to yesterday's interview. Mm-hmm. And um, and yes, as I said, finally, just to sum up, that the fog of war is thick and dense, and we do our best to penetrate it with the sort of with with our searchlights, talking to our correspondents, talking to people on the ground, talking to officials, talking to as many interesting people as we can. But some, sometimes I, I I I I wonder. I I hope it's enough and we always try and see further. Um, so thank you for asking, Francis. And I hope to our listeners that was at least a, a useful and a fruitful um, series of obs- observations that don't necessarily connect. But thank you for asking. Chinese President Xi Jinping's visit to Moscow this week has dominated headlines across the world. We've talked about it a lot on this podcast. So to finish our analysis on this historic week, I spoke to The Telegraph's China correspondent, Sophia Yan. To get her take on what the visit meant for geopolitics, and also to understand how it had gone down in China. Here's our conversation. Well, thank you so much, Sophia, for your time. When leaving Moscow, Xi Jinping told Vladimir Putin, and this is our translation in the Telegraph, right now we are seeing a change we haven't seen in 100 years, and we are driving this change together. What did you make of that?
3: In just this one line, we can begin to understand why she cultivated a relationship with Putin over the last decade. These two leaders they've met so many times ever since she took power. And it's really because he thinks this is the moment to shine for countries like China and Russia, which offer an alternative to the West for the rest of the world to look at. And, and this is, you know, you have to remember that she looks at the West as a domineering bully. Both China and Russia see eye to eye on a values front, they believe the West is trying to spread democracy and, and that that's an effort to contain authoritarian regimes. From Xi's and Putin's views, their mm-hmm. regimes are much better suited for maintaining order in an ever complex world. So all that said, it's still a really complicated relationship. This is one where they have in the past been at odds and also on the same side, sometimes both at the same time. But sometimes they agree and disagree all at the same time. So it's a really complex romance. And this is really important to remember. They have this element still of great power politics at play. And though at this moment, China really is the dominant partner.
1: During the visit, she didn't really make much mention of the Ukraine war. Um, Beyond saying, you know, China has a sort of an an impartial position. What did you make of how he was approaching what for Russia is the, the domineering sort of geopolitical issue of the day?
3: Beijing presented this trip as a peace mission, and all this time, over this last year, they've been trying to toe the line. China keeps saying that it's neutral, and on this visit, that was the same message. Uh, China has not denounced Putin, has not called what's happened an invasion. They keep calling it a crisis, or the you know, they use other terms. But at the same time, you know, she's meeting with Putin. They're having sturgeon, you know, they're they're eating caviar, drinking wine. So you have to wonder, what side are they really on? At the end of the day, the Ukraine war is not something China wants. It doesn't want to see nuclear war, which would be very destabilizing for the world, for Russia. And Russia and China share a very long land border. So that's the last thing that they want to see, because they also don't want the risk of regime change in Russia. I mean, what happens if Putin is gone and someone more Western friendly shows up? Right, They also don't want to be hit by secondary sanctions on, for China. That's already happening with a very small handful of Chinese companies. I don't think it's quite enough to really have a major impact. But China's economy is already suffering from three years of COVID lockdowns. They were having growth challenges even before the pandemic hit. They've got a lot to handle at home, so they don't want to see other challenges come its way. But at the same time, she has to toe the line. He can't back out of this relationship with Russia because he's put his face on it. He has put his personal mark on building these ties with Putin. So he's got a pretty tight, tight, uh, a balancing act. He's walking on a tightrope.
1: Obviously, there were there's lots of diplomacy and and business done uh, during this visit. What what did China get from the trip?
3: So I have to say, I think Putin. Probably got a lot less from Putin, probably got a lot less than what he wanted. And Xi, the China side, got much more. For China, this was an opportunity to message to the world how well, you know, how they see themselves. In Chinese, we say which is how mighty, how grand Beijing can be. It was a chance for China to say, okay, we are the arbiter of peace, we are the voice of reason. You have to remember, Putin's completely ostracized by much of the world right now. It's not clear who he's listening to, if anybody, but he's more than happy to sit down and listen to Xi. So that's a very powerful position for China to be in. And again, Xi Jinping seems to really believe that China can balance the West to act as a counterweight. He wants to reframe this. The U.S. looks at this whole situation as democracy versus autocracy, but China seems to want to reframe what's going on. You know, Xi Jinping sees the world. He wants the world to see China as a benign power with a lot of economic power that can stand up to a US-led world order. And so that's why also on this trip, you saw lots of jabs against the West, especially the US. State media, really, they had a ball
1: on this. Well, we'll come on to the state media reaction later. But just um, I also want to ask, I mean, you, you talked a little bit earlier about the Chinese position on the war. You've been following this now for obviously more than a year. Has it changed? Has the Chinese position changed at all? And how does the recent, and we've touched upon it briefly in the podcast, but the recent Iran-Saudi diplomatic rapprochement, how does that feed into all of this?
3: So China's position hasn't changed all this time. At first, when war broke out, it seemed like Beijing wasn't really quite sure what to say or what to do it's entirely possible they were just as surprised as the rest of the world. There's been a lot of discussion as to what she knew before the invasion happened or what she didn't know because Putin went to China. Putin met with Xi uh, right before. In the, in the weeks leading up to war, Putin went to China for the Winter Olympics that Beijing was hosting at the start of 2022, and they talked. So did Xi Jinping know? Did he have an idea? There's always been a question about that, unclear whether he did. It's hard to imagine that Putin didn't say something, maybe. But again, that's all speculation. So, because China at first was pretty quiet in how they were responding, that's what make uh, that's why a lot of experts think that maybe China was also surprised. But again, you know, we should just couch all that total total uh, speculation. But once China did kind of come towards some sort of clear message. It was this point that they are 100% neutral and that that they just want to see peace. Well, that's a great line. I mean, who doesn't want to see peace in the world right now, right? But it doesn't actually give a concrete solution as to how we get to peace. China keeps saying that it stands for peace talks, that it's ready to help. They put out this 12-point peace statement uh, on the one-year anniversary of the war, but that was just a a, a statement really of where it stands. Uh, it's against Western sanctions things like that. Um, and so there has been no concrete proposal. China, in a way, doesn't really quite know what to do because this war has dragged on for so long. And it's, again, a war that China doesn't
1: want to see. Just on that, do you think that, just thinking about the Chinese 12-point um, peace plan, do you think that it demonstrated some naivety on the situation in Ukraine that actually weren't... Because there were several things in it that are either so anodyne, they were slightly meaningless. as As you say, you know, well, everybody wants peace. Um, was it was it slightly naive, or is, there, or is there an element of well, if you keep it um, anodyne and relatively bland, then you can still you can position yourself as you know the sort of the, the benign peacemaker, but also still back your ally, or maybe a bit of both. I don't know. What do you think?
3: Exactly. So the peace statement actually is probably the most clear summary of the Chinese position that we've seen. We've he- we've heard it through the government, through what the foreign ministry has said. We've heard it in state media. That. Their position, I think, is pretty clear, but that statement put it all down in one document. And one thing that they have stuck by all this time is that they respect every country's sovereignty. And this line is super interesting because obviously Ukraine and Russia define their sovereignty very, very, very differently. Russia and Ukraine do not agree, right, on where their borders are. So this is a cop-out. China's not officially publicly saying much at all, right? They are just using it as an opportunity to, again, further this message to the West that they oppose this U.S.-led order. I mean, they really see the U.S. as a domineering bully. So that's why they're against these Western sanctions. Uh, They keep railing against the U.S. saying, well, you're the ones who are sending weapons to Ukraine. Stop saying that we might give Russia lethal aid. We've done nothing of the sort. There's a lot that they uh, are saying to, to push back.
1: You mentioned earlier um, how state media reported on the visit. Could you take us inside that a bit more? What did the average Chinese person see of of this? How was it presented to them?
3: This was, again, another opportunity for China to really poke at the West. There were some really key lines in state media. I'll read them out loud to you. It'll give you a sense of how China is looking at this whole situation, the the whole world right now. So here's one. The world has suffered terribly because of an egoistic and self-serving United States. Because of the conflict, the Ukrainians have lost hugely. This is state media commentary. The piece goes on to accuse the U.S. of opposing a ceasefire, which is causing chaos in the world with food, energy, and financial crises. And then here's another the line in that same piece. To be a responsible major country, the United States should stop being the destroyer of peace and creator of crisis shipped to the right side of history and help bring this disaster to an end. So this is China sending itself up to say, okay, we're the, we're, we're the ones who are calling for peace. We're the ones who are level-headed. Can't we all sit at the table and behave like adults, right? The U.S. is the one, again, you know, I said this earlier, sending the weapons out to the battlefield. I mean, this is playing into the message they want the world to be hearing and to stand as a counterpoint to the U.S.
1: That's absolutely fascinating. How did you get a sense of how this visit went down, um Elsewhere in Asia and in other countries, not just in China, so Japan or Taiwan. What what are your thoughts on that? Presumably, it was portrayed and understood slightly differently.
3: The Japanese Prime Minister was in in Ukraine when she was in Russia. And This is really interesting because China and Japan have a, a long history. So, Russia's actions have really triggered a very deep concern in Japan that a Chinese takeover of Taiwan could be reality. So. Just pulling back here, Taiwan is an island nation that has its own government, its own currency, its own military, its own foreign affairs. China claims Taiwan as its territory, again, something that Taiwan rejects. And this has always been an issue, but it's become more of an issue because Xi Jinping has made very clear that he intends to annex Taiwan. He's made clear that he wants the military to be ready. He's made all these moves to reform the military. There are drills all the time in the in the water between and the ocean between mainland China and Taiwan. And then ever since Russia's invasion of Ukraine began, it's really thrown this new urgency over this particular issue of whether or not China would do the same with Taiwan. And so from Japan's perspective, I mean, we're talking about massive geopolitical uh, potentially massive geopolitical chaos in this part of the world. Um, Japan has, in recent decades, been quite pacifist. Post-war pacifist tendencies, meaning that they are trying not to spend too much on defense. They don't want to give everybody else in the region too much concern that they might be um, exerting or uh, exerting much swagger, let's say. So all of this now makes them really worry that if China could consider encroaching on Taiwan, then would its ambition stretch to Japan, to Korea, to Southeast Asia? This is something that smaller Southeast Asian, Asian, uh, Southeast Asian nations have long been worried about. They dispute territorial claims that China makes in the ocean waters that they all share. But China and Japan, as I said earlier, they have a very difficult, complex history. China has a lot of grudges against Japan. They fought brutally in the Second World War. Japan, along with the UK, for instance, are part of what the Chinese call the century of humiliation. This moment in history where the Chinese were forced to capitulate to foreign powers due to unequal treaties on unfavorable terms. And that's what they believe led to the demise of what was once the great Chinese empire. For a lot of Chinese, this is really painful history to think about. And when you look at what Xi Jinping's done, it seems that he's trying to counter that, that he's trying to lead... The return of the great Chinese nation on the world stage. So there is something there in the back of people's minds. Will China come one day to, they say in Chinese, which literally means to balance the books. And in this context, that means to settle old scores. Is China going to get come and get a revenge when it comes to Japan? So this is really a big concern for the
1: Japanese. Looking back for the final word on uh, Xi's state visit to Russia, Did anything surprise you about how it unfolded or how it was portrayed?
3: So this is just my observation, my spidey sense. Uh, It was actually a bit underwhelming. And maybe that was the point. You know, I want to be clear. This is not a conclusion that I've come to having talked to 20-some experts and analysts or anything like that. This is just from observing what happened. But maybe this was always supposed to be a routine trip. Who knows, right? China is a very opaque regime. We, at best, get some glimmers of what they're thinking, but in reality, there's the upper echelons, what what she's thinking, who she's talking to. I mean, this is stuff that's really hidden. And so he was just, quote-unquote, re-elected president. And the last time that happened, five years ago, he did the same. He went and saw Putin shortly after he saw his buddy. And these are two world leaders, again, that engaged very often. They've met around 40 times over the last 10 years, so it makes sense for them to continue to engage periodically so maybe this was just something that was on the docket. You know, they they have to go see each other every X number of months or whatnot. So, it's so again, hard to know for sure from the Chinese side, but it just seemed like there weren't as many fireworks as I might have thought there would be. Does that make sense?
1: No, that does make sense. Um, one final question from me. Just going back to this to the media angle. Is the war in Ukraine still on? Regularly in Chinese media, is it? Is it still a sort of daily story, as 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 it is in the West, or is it falling off the radar slightly? What what are the issues that dominate Chinese media, if not if not the war in Ukraine?
3: Yeah, so C media does still cover this, but it's often a a way to push against the U.S. Uh, as a way for the U.S. to state that the U.S is spanning the flames of war it's it's another opportunity for the us uh, excuse me it's another opportunity for china to reinstate its position on this rivalry that it's got with the us uh there have been quite a bit of uh, there has been quite a bit of coverage in recent weeks over internal affairs um china just had its annual rubber stamp parliament meetings at which xi jinping was re-elected, quote unquote <laughs> reelected um with no competition, um, as president for another term. And this is adding on to his renewal of staying on from last fall as the head of the ruling Chinese Communist Party. So he's got party titles and government titles. So there's been a lot of stuff going on within China, too. So that's dominated headlines. Um, but when it comes to the the war in Ukraine, it's, it's really all about using it as a way to show that the West is in complete chaos and is in decline, and that China and its system, its political system and its way of governance is actually the much better option.
1: Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just one pound at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest or sign up to dispatches our Ukraine newsletter which brings stories from our award winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox we also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day including insights from regular contributors to this podcast you can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter spaces follow the telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it to our listeners on YouTube Please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload, so if you want to hear Ukraine The Latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review, as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message and you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and today on Twitter, Rachel Duffy.